And if you don't have anything, nobody can take anything away from you. You know, Seneca says something interesting. He says somewhere in one of his letters, cease to hope and you'll cease to fear because hope is dependent uh, on the future. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And today I am speaking with Professor Mark Usher, a professor of classical languages and literature at the University of Vermont. He is also a carpenter and a farmer. His books include How to Care About Animals, How to Say No, and How to Be a Farmer. These are all a part of an Ancient Guide to Life series. That's Princeton's An Ancient Guide to Life series. Well, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, today we'll focus on cynicism, the philosophy of cynicism. Um, but before doing that, I was struck by looking at your biography. You know, Musonius Rufus says, the best vocation for a philosopher is to be a farmer. You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, of course, I would agree. I would agree with it, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure I'm a philosopher, but um, uh, farming does uh, inculcate all the right habits, teaches you patience, teaches you character. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot going for farming um, in terms of, you know, organic philosophy, let's, let's call it. Not bookish, for sure. You know, learning as you do and as you try and trial and error. So philosophy is a lot about that. And so is farming. Right, right. And Musonius Rufus says it gives you, of course, that, that connection to nature. Um, and he also says it gives you more time to philosophize, which I'm not sure if that's true. I don't know if he was a farmer. So maybe that may or may not be true. It depends how much time you spend on the on the tractor. Uh, you, you're, you're alone in your thoughts quite a bit with repetitive manual work. And of course, farming in antiquity was a lot of repetitive manual work, you know, hoeing a field or plowing a field. or And um, so I guess it's that time alone, um, mm. you know, without, uh, without music in your ears and just uh, the sounds of nature around you. So... It's got to be conducive to to, to thinking clearly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems that seems plausible to me. Well, today we want to talk a little bit about the philosophy of cynicism, and of course, the first question that arises is, you know, what is cynicism? What what exactly are we talking about? So uh, it's a philosophy for the dogs. Um, the word cynic, as you probably know, but maybe your listeners don't know, means dog or dog-like in ancient Greek. So uh, it was a, a moniker that was cast as an aspersion on people who lived this lifestyle and preached on the streets. Uh, they were called cynics by others, not by themselves. Um, and, uh, and it had a lot to do with their shameless behavior. Um, they lived on the streets like stray dogs. They basically dumpster dived for their food or, you know, begged for it as a dog would. And they kind of cultivated this image. And many of the anecdotes that we have about the cynics, they they play that up. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I always like to think that that the cynics were, you know, in some ways, the truer, I'll get a lot of flack for this, I think, for saying this, but the truer descendants of Socrates than perhaps, uh, you know, Plato and the academics were, or, or even the Stoics were. I mean, you know, the barefoot, disheveled Socrates, not a care in the world, who was pretty much a parasite on other people. Um, the cynics resemble that in, in many, many ways. And there are a lot of, we can talk more about it if you want, but there are a lot of parallels between the Socratic calling and the cynic calling 
to uh, to philosophize in public. And there's a hint of it, I think, um, even in Plato. And and I think it 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 might go back to Socrates himself originally. And that is Plato in the Republic famously argues that the most philosophical animal is the dog, because mm-hmm. a dog knows instinctively what what belongs in its domain and what does not. So, you know, the master and the people in the house, he's friendly to, but an intruder or something foreign or something, you know, dangerous, the dog will, uh, you know, attack. Um, and it's all very instinctive. Um, and Plato plays with that that idea when he names his guardians the phulakes, uh, the guardians, that's in Greek. And he's punning on, in that passage where he coins that word, or that technical term, he's he, that's when he says that the dog is the most philosophical animal. And the word that he uses in that context is skulax. So fulax, skulax, Plato's punning on his guardians. They're the, they're the watchdogs, literally, of the ideal society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to what extent does the modern word cynic map onto the ancient philosophy? So, of course, sometimes people are called Stoics as well. Uh, you know, he has a Stoic response. On that, that lowercase stoic and yep. it's on one hand it's a caricature of the philosophy you have someone who has you know their the idea is they are someone who's not perturbed maybe they don't even show their have much of an emotional life at all they're stoic in that sense they withstand and of course that gets uh, at something in the philosophy but as a whole picture it's uh, imperfect this, would you say the same for the english word cynic yeah, that's well said about Stoicism. I think it's the same for cynicism. So, you know, the idea of a modern cynic is somebody who, you know, has a lot of criticism, but doesn't do anything about it, you know, is a lot of talk and critique and is enjoys showing people up or is perhaps a little bit aloof, uh, but doesn't actually have solutions or doesn't, you know, put the money where the mouth is, um, as it were. So, you know, cynicism, modern cynicism in that sense doesn't map on very well to ancient cynicism because cynicism was all action. I mean, it was a lot of talk too. I mean, they put a lot mm-hmm. of people down. They loved doing that, the cynics. But they were also, you know, they woke up every day, you know, homeless, barefoot, barely clad, and with no food. So their job for the day was to find some. You know, they definitely were living it. They were living that uh, sort of uh, that lifestyle intentionally, um, and. Uh, so yeah, they weren't uh, armchair anything's. They weren't armchair about their their beliefs. Were they always art outsiders? Do you think that's an accurate claim that the cynics they tended to be at the edges of society? Hmm. I mean, I think I think on the whole, yes. But but they're you know as, as all of us are, we're somehow like we're all on the spectrum to some degree, and the cynics fell on a spectrum too where you do get cynics who were totally outrageous and like Diogenes, um, uh, you know, intentionally homeless, voluntary poverty, outrageous actions like masturbating in public, defecating in public, the, the exact sorts of things that humans are not supposed to do in polite company and civilized society. They did that all on purpose. But then you've got other guys like, um, you know, Demonax, um, about whom Lucian writes. And, and you know, according to Lucian, Demonax was his teacher. He was a cynic. And um, Lucian's life of Demonax is, is very, I mean, 
he's all but a statesman. I mean, he's like a, a man about town. You know, he seems to kind of live out of doors, but of course, everyone in Greece lived out of doors. He's, he's you know, he embraces all the austerities, according to Lucian, of the cynics, but yet he settles like public disputes. He speaks in the, the law courts. Um, he's seen as sort of like an oracle that people go to to ask for advice. Um, he's urbane, quite literally, you know, living in the city, but also kind of chic and slick. And Lucian says that he was like uh, well-versed in all the poets and, and he cultivated rhetoric in a way that was appealing to Lucian, but probably unlike the kind of rhetoric that Diogenes cultivated. So you know, he's, he's a much more civilized kind of cynic. Demetrius too, uh, the friend of Seneca, was a little bit, I mean, he also was a street preacher, uh, as it seems, um, from the evidence that we have. But he was also, he also moved in kind of political circles. He was friends with the rich and famous, you know, probably invited to, to dine with them, but he associated with them. And he was actually involved with a bunch of guys who were um, bent on assassinating Nero, which actually included Seneca as well, which was mostly a stoic kind of mm -hmm. movement to get rid of Nero, that whole conspiracy. Um, so, you know, he had, he had strange bedfellows himself. So yeah, there, there's a spectrum, but on the whole, I think, yes, you're right. They're, they're kind of outsiders um, and on purpose. Right. Yeah. The, the connection to the Stoic opposition is certainly interesting uh, in Nero's time. And that's, I suppose that you do have the model of the cynic as an outsider, a critic, someone who's questioning these conventions uh, social conventions uh, as arbitrary or something of that sort. But as right. you say, it's a continuum and there are cynics who don't have, you know, that sort of that rejection of convention that you see in Diogenes. I was just going to say not, perhaps not as full a rejection, but of course the cynics were also staunch conformists. Uh, we don't, we don't tend to think of them that way, but they were conformists in their own mind. They were conforming to a life according to nature even even perhaps more radically than the Stoics uh, were. So they, they, they saw what they were up to as a life of conformity and, and a, a studied life of conformity. So let's see how much civilization I can do without. Um, so, you know, it's a question of where they align their, their thought world. And it was with nature as opposed to culture, you know, both with uppercase uh, letters there. So you have... One way to frame Stoicism, of course, is that uh, it the Stoic life is also the life according to nature. You also live according to nature. What does that, that mean? That means for human beings, living the virtuous life. And that amounts to managing what the Stoics called preferred indifference, dispreferred indifference well, essentially making good, good choices. And... One uh, way to describe the difference between the cynics and the Stoics, of which there are many, but perhaps a fundamental difference is that the cynics don't have this idea that there are such a thing as preferred indifference. There's solely the life of virtue, living in accordance with nature, and th things like wealth, health, pleasure, social status, which a Stoic might say is they're generally good, they're preferable, but one should never sacrifice them for virtue, of course. The cynic line is, oh, those aren't good at all. Those have nothing to do with the life. Uh, uh, that have, those have nothing to do with nature understood as uh, you know, nature with this capital N, the way things ought to be, the telos of things. 
you think that's that's an adequate gloss? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's absolutely terrific. You did you did better at that than I could have. I think that is accurate. Um, the, the cynics are sort of stoics on steroids. You, I mean, we couldn't. I mean, you and I, or at least I couldn't. I don't know about you. You know, I couldn't be a cynic. I mean, um, I, I admire them, and I think a lot of people admired them from afar. Like even Seneca ad- admired Demetrius mm-hmm. from afar because of their their single-mindedness and their commitment. I mean, they were all in uh, and they were sort of mascots in the cities in which they lived. They, they actually, you know, because they were so extreme and they actually could do what they did, uh, people ad- admired them for it as well as they had detractors too, of course. But stoicism is, is much more of the middle way that, um, you know, anybody can be a stoic. There's nothing preventing you from that. I mean, uh, uh, except yourself <laughs> um, and, your, and your choices and, uh, the cynics are, are, are a harder, a harder example to follow. Um, that's kind of why I think of them as sort of extreme Stoics. So mm-hmm. Stoicism might be a middle way, and and then may, maybe maybe the cynics are what the Buddha was before he became the Buddha. <laughs> you know, he was he was a, a shramana. He was a you know, one of these like ascetics wandering in the forest. But then he he figured out that oh that doesn't really do it. Um, and so he became, as it were, a stoic <laughs> to <laughs> the cynic that he was before. I mean, I, just an analogy, but yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, it's also, I think, fits on nicely with the Stoic philosopher Epictetus mentions the cynics as role models, especially Diogenes. But he counsels his students that life is not for most of you, maybe all of you. And that, I think that captures that idea that, that even Stoics can and did recognize the cynics as living good lives, lives that are worthwhile, but perhaps on their view, and there's, this might be a difference between them and the Stoics, of course, that wasn't the life that most people should lead because of their personal constitution, social arrangements, what have you. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the, the Seneca has a great letter about this, um, and it's in the it's in the, the, the book, How to Say No. I translated it there where he, he without naming them, he criticizes, you know, philosophers who go to extremes and kind of wear it on the outside. You know, the shaggy hair, the long beard with f- daubs of food in it, you know, uh, tatters for clothes. You know, he says, Who's going to want to be a philosopher if that's if that's what you're looking at? I mean that that sort of sight and stench is not going to attract anybody. And he he says instead he says be different on the inside, right? You know let our outside he uses the Latin word frons, you know agree with everyone else. Let it let it conform, but on the inside intus, let it be different. Um, uh, so. It, it, that kind of is encapsulates what you were saying before about the difference between uh, Stoicism and, and, and cynicism, yeah. Epictetus's view, for instance. So Seneca was saying that even before. Well, do you have any favorite anecdotes or stories about the cynics? Oh, uh, dear. Uh, well, a lot of them. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, oh, one that just pops into my head that's not in, in the book, but... Um, it came up in another context that when I was writing about uh, Thoreau. So at the at the beginning of Thoreau's Walden, you know, he there's the famous kind of epigraph that says, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing, but I, I cock-a-doodle-doo. I don't sing an ode dejection, he says. I do my cock-a-doodle-doo like a Chanticleer in the morning, if only to wake my neighbors up. 
And um, there's a great, and, and most people have thought that's kind of an allusion to the medieval tale of Renard the Fox and all of that. It's, it's included in there. But there's a cynic anecdote that's similar to that as well. And I see a lot of cynic posturing on Thoreau's part. And the cynic anecdote is that Diogenes would go to a concert and the guy would start singing and then Diogenes would stand up and interrupt him like right away and say, hail Chanticleer. And the guy says, what do you mean? And of course, Chanticleer meaning the rooster, um, uh, a lector in Greek. And, and he says, well, as soon as you open your mouth, people get up and leave. People get up and leave. And it's hard to convey in, in, in the Greek, the word to get up is the same word as to like wake up, like wake up in the morning. So Diogenes meant it as like a put down for the guy who's singing is so bad, people stand up and get out of the uh, concert hall. But the idea is also a cynic trope too, right? You know, to to actually like sing from the rooftops and wake people up, wake them out of their mm-hmm. slumber. So uh, I, I like that one. Boy, there's a lot of them. Um, so maybe uh, ask me again halfway through the interview and I'll think of it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure more will come up. I, a, classic, a classic one that I think is uh, one of my favorites is just the story of Alexander the Great and Diogenes the Cynic and Alexander, of course, wanting to meet this famous philosopher yeah. and Diogenes simply requesting as Alexander bumbles over that he stop right. blocking the sun, which I just, of course, just captures that rejection of social status, wealth and power and inherent in cynicism. Right. Ask me for whatever you like. And Diogenes you know, sitting, sitting there in front of his, you know, barrel or whatever it was, a pithos sunning himself, just step out of my sunshine, please. That's enough. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 That's a good one. Um, oh yeah. There's a lot of them, you know, um, you know, uh, wanking in public, right? Of course, that's outrageous enough. And then somebody, and he's doing it until somebody asks him, what are you doing? And he says, and of course, he's just waiting for it. He's just waiting for somebody to ask him so he can say this, if only hunger were relieved by just rubbing one's stomach. Um, you know, and it's like, it's perfect. Now, the problem with all these little anecdotes that we do have about Diogenes, you probably know this, again, your your listeners might not, is like, it's hard to know if they're historical because they, fo- they form part of this larger tradition of, of made up anecdotes about famous philosophers, but the cynics in particular called Crei. And in, in later antiquity, one of, one of the one of the rhetorical exercises that students would would practice to kind of get good at writing and coming up with good witty banter for social occasions was to compose these crayi. And so a lot of them could have could well have been just like made up after the fact. But I have to say this about that. People say, oh, we don't really know if Dowdy's did and said all those things. I'm going to say it doesn't matter because, you know, the legend of Diogenes and company, you know, that it was such a, it became a meme and it became a, it, it became a movement and had a life of its own such, such that somebody could write something later that was so mm-hmm. to the point and com- conveys, you know, the philosophy of cynicism so perfectly, who cares <laughs> if it ever happened? It's terrific. You know, it's a very teachable, memorable um, saying. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's that. Yeah, no, that seems exactly right to me. Of course, if you're, there is a sense in which 
many of these figures are uh, a combination of factual history and myth. And it's a question of, you know, what are we up to when we're talking about them? Often we're trying to pull out lessons or use their lives as some illustration of a larger principle. And mm. uh, I think there, there sometimes there is the issue that, of course, if that mythical character is doing things that are impossible, then maybe they're not so useful in illustrating principles about how to live. But right. n- nonetheless, I think, uh, at least in the case of Diogenes, he's served a useful both philosophical and practical purpose for many people. Yeah. Another one of one that falls into that category is like the, um, the the consultation of the Delphic Oracle. So famously, you know, a friend of Socrates goes to the Delphic Oracle and says, "Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the wisest of them all?" And the Oracle says, "Socrates." And so Socrates's friend, his name is Chirophon, comes back and tells Socrates, tells everyone. The oracle says, you're the wisest one of all. And so Socrates then concludes, well, that must be because I don't know anything. So wisdom, you know, true wisdom lies in ignorance or uh, awareness of one's own lack of knowledge. Um, So Diogenes also has a a Delphic oracle story. So it goes back to when he and his father were, you know, apparently kicked out of town for defacing the currency. So his dad was a banker and they were doing something, shaving, shaving a little bit of silver off the side or who knows what they were doing. Uh, and, and his dad got put in jail for it and Diogenes was exiled. Again, this is all the story. So and in exile, what do you do when you, uh, you know, you, you have no livelihood and you don't know where to turn next? You go to the Delphic Oracle, you consult it. And you say, what should I do? And the Delphic Oracle replied, deface the currency. And Diogenes said, well, wait a minute. I just did that. <laughs> I just did that and got chucked out of Sinope where I live. And, and then, it, you know, and then again, the story turns on this. He says, aha, it's deface the currency is parakaraksai ton nomisma in Greek. And that word nomisma can mean currency in both senses, just as it does Today, it can mean actual currency, like, you know, cash on the nose, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. or it can mean cultural currency, what is accepted as, you know, legal tender in behavior and manners and ethics. And and so Diogenes took it upon himself with Delphic approval to deface the cultural currency of his time. Um, And Julian in the the book, uh, Julian makes a big, big deal about that calling from Delphi to be, you know, the way he was as, you know, sanctifying it and uh, legitimizing um, his, his life in philosophy. But again, there, there, did that happen? You know, people consulted the Delphic Oracle all the time in moments of crisis, personal and states did the same thing. But it doesn't matter because it's a great story. And it, uh, you know, it gives you purpose in thinking about, uh, you know, when you wake up hungry in the morning, why am I doing this? Aha, uh-huh, I've got a, a Delphic mandate, you know, like Socrates to do this. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So what if you're thinking about the cynic life, many it's a philosophy of life, sort of an account of how to live well, what the good life looks like and how to live well. Um, and to what extent does it have like other philosophies of life, stoicism, skepticism, what have you, a training program? You know, what's the, the an account of either exercises, philosophical uh, techniques for becoming better for living well. Hmm. 
I mean, the cynics, the cynics definitely had a training program. I mean, they gave us that word, uh, askesis. Askesis in Greek means training, and it's where the English word you probably know, ascetic, comes from. So, you know, they weren't the, the world's first ascetics by any means, the cynics, but they they gave us gave us the word, and that that the word actually comes from the domain of of wrestling and sports. So it literally does mean exercise and training as an Olympic athlete would train. So they they viewed their kind of um, their life living living their life close in accordance with nature uh, and testing themselves physically. They had a word for it, panos, like hard work. They did that on purpose to train the body so that but voluntarily to train, right? So that when push came to shove and you didn't have a choice to be without or to have food or whatever it was, you you could endure it because, you know, your muscles were strong, you know, your ethical muscles, your mental uh, resources were strong and you could resist the kind of the whims of fortune. Um, you know, you didn't know what could happen tomorrow. So it was a way of um, being prepared for whatever would come your way. Uh, and that kind of training was, was well, actually, Diogenes says it's also pleasurable. Like you, you actually learn to like doing without and it becomes kind of a, I don't know what it becomes, not, not pleasure, but like, well, he says pleasure, uses the word pleasure, but like a game. So mm-hmm. are you better than yourself? Let's see. Are you really better than yourself? That whole notion of being the master of yourself, controlling yourself. They, they thought, how far could we push that? And how much can I do without? And it became like a challenge. And a, um, so uh, what, what, is, what is the end game of that? I'm not sure, you know, for the Stoics, it's to, they have, the Stoics have a much more elaborate, you know, comprehensive worldview about humans place in the natural world and in the social world and everything. They thought all those things through. Cynics really didn't, as far as I can see, it wasn't their shtick. So, but anyway, they, they, they went to great extent to, to train themselves to, um, to be able to, to make it. So in a post-apocalyptic world, where all the other humans are gone, there would be cynics, you know, <laughs> cynics, dogs left over at the end of it. That's too funny. I, I, I suppose so you have that, that idea of building self-control by exposing yourself to voluntary discomfort. And the cynics do that on a whole nother level. It's like it's a voluntary discomfort. We're not going to sleep. You know, Seneca says, go some nights and sleep sleeping on the floor. And the cynics say, just don't have a house that you don't need to just, you know, go a few nights. It's a matter yeah. of really exposing oneself to the discomforts that are closer to the extreme end that one, you know, one might experience uh, right. in life, not, not just sort of moving in a, that knob just a, a little bit. They, the cynics go the whole way. Yeah. I think the cynics saw themselves as like, uh, exemplars. I, I mean, like examples, like they made an example of themselves because most people won't, won't bother. So they were, yeah, they were extreme on purpose, more so on purpose to, to draw attention, to kind of like swing the pendulum back or something, you know, um, mm-hmm. Stoics were much more balanced and, and reasonable in that way. Yeah. The, so, but I guess you, to some extent you touched on this already, but what is that end game? That's almost you know, experiencing voluntary discomfort is almost a defensive type strategy where 
you you can live well even in terrible circumstances like that those external circumstances won't harm you you'll have the self-control required to act well but then there's that question what does acting well look like what's the positive vision of life that's not merely like you know withstanding uh discomfort suffering for its own sake good point autonomy i think i mean they were into uh autonomy and out what they called out archaea you know sufficing for yourself and not being dependent upon anybody or anything that can be taken away at any moment so uh i think that they 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 felt free i mean freedom <laughs> you know autonomy freedom autarkia all these things are i think part of what they were after in their extreme way and um you know, they had to have it. I mean, how can you wake up every morning, you know, without a place to live, with not knowing where your your the next meal is coming from and and you know, be content and be happy and be able to do it for your whole life. I mean, and and cynicism was a, a long lived, you know, I won't call it really a philosophy, but a way of life that lasted till, you know, late antiquity until it kind of morphed into Christian monasticism. So, uh, and that had a very different motivation, though many of the many of the trappings and many of the same ideas of like training went into mm -hmm. it. It 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 kept a lot of people happy. Maybe they were dissatisfied, so dissatisfied with cultural forms and cultural norms that this was, you know, uh, paradise compared to that. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's important to remember the uh, many of these ancient philosophies when they thought about freedom it wasn't so much like the capacity to do whatever one liked or the capacity that to, to have multiple options open it was rather uh, a vision where you have the desires you ought to have and then acted on those so for the cynics they might see so many of our desires are arbitrary arbitrary matters of social convention and that's why you see them do all, all these outrageous things at least at least classically to uh, signify the rejection of those conventions right and if you don't have anything nobody can take anything away from you um you know seneca says something interesting uh that's i don't know how stoic it really is it probably is you know card carrying stoic but he says somewhere in one of his letters cease to hope and you'll cease to fear because hope is is dependent can, uh, on the future. It's like you're, um, and and if you if you if you're not if you don't hope, uh, you you won't be disappointed. <laughs> so there, there's something also in in freedom that I think is conducive to equanimity and just um, living in the present. You know, uh, nobody is miserable in the present. Um, if that's exactly where you are and that's where exactly you want to be. And um, I think a lot of the cynic austerity was, was about living in that present. I mean, moment mm -hmm. to moment and abiding in it. I mean, it almost sounds religious. It, it was perhaps more so than it was a philosophy. There isn't a lot of arguments yeah. in cynicism, uh, philosophical ones. In stoicism, there's tons. I mean, yeah, you've got physics, you've got the logic, you've got the ethics, you know, the whole thing is like an egg and it all works together. And they like very sophisticated theories, the, the Stoics. Cynics, they didn't even care. They didn't even care about education or, you know, singing and dancing and the poets and all that. It was like they said, don't bother. Uh, why bother? What, is, what good does it do you?
I think one of the images that Seneca attributes to Demetrius the Cynic is that Demetrius was always fond of saying, Seneca says, um, it's better to know a couple of wrestling moves rather than a whole encyclopedia of them, because you only need to you only need to know the move you need to win the bout. You don't need any more than that. So just know a, a couple of good tricks that work for you and work really well. And don't hypothesize and cultivate all the possibilities. Don't overthink it. Just, you know, you know, yeah, keep it simple. Um, and Seneca says he admired Demetrius for that. It was one of his signature sayings. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, he says the same thing for philosophy. You just need the philosophical moves that help you win, essentially. Right? Yeah. yeah. You mentioned earlier the cynics following in the footsteps of Socrates. I always think that's a useful frame to understand these, these philosophies because, of course, the skeptics, they took some parts of Socrates' life, his philosophy, and saw themselves as the you know, the true successors of the man. And then you have, of course, the Stoics doing the, the same thing. How, how did the cynics follow in, in, in Socrates' footsteps? Well, um, well, because they were almost exclusively focused on ethics, as probably was the historical Socrates, even though we get the reports from Plato that he was reading an Anaxagoras when he was a young guy and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, it, uh, that that exclusive focus on ethics, the the urbanity or the the urban setting of it, uh, and the out of doors nature of of cynic lifestyle, um, those things in particular are very so- Socratic. Uh, the the use of like analogies and um, comparisons from everyday life, uh, even like really lowbrow comparisons that mm-hmm. Socrates was famous for and got criticized for by his you know, highfalutin, high society friends and patrons. So washerwomen, cobblers, carpenters, stonemasons. Uh, the cynics were were very much about that kind of everyday, down and dirty kind of comparisons um, and philosophy in the gutter, as it were. Um, so, I mean, in those ways, it just seems like it's a, it's a, it, it's spiritually, as it were, um, a, a closer succession. Um, and the fact that they weren't, they didn't claim to teach anybody anything. I mean, really, um, they were, it's all about example, all about, you know, bios, the way of life. Those things seem to me to be mm-hmm. Socratic, uh, more so than the later developments in Stoicism in the Academy or Aristotle, for that matter. That's, right, not, to, right. that's not to knock Aristotle, Plato, the Stoics. I mean, that I mean, that, that, it's amazing uh, the direction that philosophy did take after Socrates, and that Socrates inspired it and was always like the thread running through it all. You know, it all does all boil down to how you live, you know, how to live a life, how to have a life. All that is all the the, the superstructure of philosophy is subservient to that basic thing. The cynics said, "That's enough for us." That basic how to live a life, how to have a life, how to be happy or content um, is the point. And uh, so it's like, you know, actually, famously, cynicism is, is said to be a shortcut to virtue. I think a Stoic actually said that. It's the shortcut to virtue. So you don't have to go through all that, you know, the doctrines and mastering physical theories and all this sort of stuff to get there. It's like, the again, I mentioned Buddha before, but it's like, I think the Buddha told some sort of 
parable about a, a raft. Like if you're crossing a river, you have a raft, right? And you get to the other side of the river with the raft. Only a fool would put it on his back and start carrying it around wherever you go. Once you've reached there, it's like discard it. You don't need it anymore. And it was sort of like, that's what the Dharma is, right? You just like get rid of it once you once you've made it to the other side. The cynics were more of that mentality about what was useful or not for for a good life. Yeah, you only need the theory insofar as it's conducive to, to living well. And perhaps another Socratic connection is that Socrates himself was not the theorizer, it was his students who put his work into the systematic philosophical worldviews. And you, you could think of that as a mistake and perhaps on this and extent. Yep. And he was more interested in showing other people up than making, you know, well, it seems <laughs> than making positive statements. And the cynics share that as well. They, they love to show people up, you know, not for its own sake, but because, well, people need showing up. <laughs> I think that the cynics were optimists in many ways. I mean, I, I, I don't think they were, they, they, there's a lot of absurdity in cynicism. You know, they, they, they seem to embrace the absurd and, and see the absurd in, in, in day-to-day life. But I, I think fundamentally they are still rationalists. There are a couple of anecdotes about that. You know, Diogenes says somewhere that, you know, you have to use uh, either logos to live your life, reason, or you might as well use a, a brakos. Uh, and brakos can mean two things. It can mean like a, a noose, like you might as well hang yourself if you're not going to be a rational person because you're never going to solve any problems or live a good life. Or it could mean also reins. So you either need to use your logos, your reason, or you need to actually have like a straitjacket on to prevent you from doing what you're not supposed to do because you can't control yourself. <laughs> so I, you know, I think I think there's something about cynicism that d- does still puts a premium on 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 rationality and the human ability to choose. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's one of the central Socratic threads that runs through most of these philosophies. Is that you know, for the Stoics, if you change how you think, you can make better decisions, live uh, that life according to nature, and you can uh, manage your emotional life as well. Skeptics, they think the same. They just think you need to hold those competing views in, in mind and not embrace either in order to to find that tranquil state. Right. Yeah. Who do you think of, uh, or who comes to mind as the cynics today, or at least people who have some of the most uh, cynic elements either in in their philosophy or, or their life? Well, take away the fancy suits and uh, all the makeup uh, and uh, the, the, you know, the, the entertainment aspect of it or the extreme entertainment aspect of it. And stand-up comedians are, are great cynics. I mean, Stephen Colbert, maybe, you know. So stand-up late-night comedy has a, a good cynic aspect to it, I think. Um, maybe it leans more toward that modern sense of cynicism that we were talking about before. I don't know. But, you know, one of my favorites um, that I, I write about in, in another book uh, that I have um, is Mr. Money Mustache. Have you ever heard of Mr. Money Mustache? I know of Mr. Money Mustache, yes. Okay, so he's like a, he's like a, a guy who, he's like a dude <laughs> who like in his early forties was able to retire, maybe even in his thirties 
because he made enough money to retire. And then he figured out that you only need $24,000 a year to live. And so if you invest and expect a 4% return, you can, if you only need like $600,000 to have saved up to be able to live off, you know, the income of your investments for the rest of your life, $24,000 a year. So he, he basically has a website and he, he gives like, you know, investment advice, but he also gives a lot of lifestyle advice. And it's a whole cult of mustachians who kind of do the same thing. His real name is Peter Adani, but he's kind of, he's kind of like a, a modern day cynic. <laughs> um, uh, a bunch of years ago, there's a, a really annoying guy uh, what was his real name? Colin Bevan, who who did a, a stunt to live with no impact in an apartment in Manhattan. And he dragged his wife and his baby daughter along with him. And so progressively over the course of a year, they, they tried to do without carbon foot, carbon footprint impact. So, you know, no uh, paper diapers. Uh, they shut off the the uh, electricity at their apartment eventually. And he made a film about it um, called No Impact Man, uh, or somebody made a film about him. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm-mm. You know, that kind of like stunt mentality of doing something to, or, or that guy who, what's that guy who supersized me guy, the guy who ate all that, you know, oh, right, junk, right. Uh, Morgan something, mm-hmm. you know, he ate all that junk food just to show how bad it is for you. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of, I think that's a, a similar impulse to what the cynics were, were up to, you know, to do something more so to, to, to draw attention to a point, to sacrifice yourself almost, mm-hmm. uh, in, in it, but make it very public, um, to uh, draw attention to something. Yeah. I suppose media and the internet give you new opportunities to do that, to show, sh- share your, at least cynic style message with m- many more people. But you asked the wrong person about modern anything because I don't really pay attention. I don't. <laughs> I don't know how to use my phone. Uh, I don't you know. Yeah, never. So yeah, I, I don't even know what's out there. There's probably so many cynic type people on TikTok or whatever's <laughs> whatever people do these days, and I just don't know about it. Uh, it would be interesting to to hear from somebody who who does who follows that because I bet you'd find a lot of it. Do other philosophers or writers? artists come to mind, not necessarily modern ones, but people who you think also captured some of that cynic spirit? Well, yes, but he's actually, this guy's a real philosopher too, in a way, but he's not, I don't think he gets a lot of traction amongst academic philosophers because he doesn't bother to substantiate every jot and tittle that he, that he points out. Uh, Byung-Chul Han, I don't know if you've ever read any Byung-Chul Han, He's a Korean, Germano-Korean mm-hmm. philosopher, Korean-born, writes in German, lives in Berlin. I love that guy. He writes like teeny tiny books that you can read like before you go to bed, uh, the whole book. Um, but they're like, they're aphoristic. It's like reading Nietzsche almost. It, they're very declarative. But his 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 cultural critique of the digital world we live in and, and our willingly... Uh, our willingness to give up our autonomy and our humanity to neoliberalism or whatever else, whatever ever God that is, is out there is, uh, is remarkable. So he, he strikes me as, you know, cynic like, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I like his, I like his work. 
Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I suppose to some extent, you, you, I, I haven't read any of his work, but you see maybe Nietzsche has some cynic elements, of course, also some non-cynic ones. Yeah, there's a lot of cynic posturing in Nietzsche. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes, that, that provocateur type approach to, to philosophy. Right. I mean, uh, but, but Nietzsche was a Nietzsche was also a, a, a hypochondriac, and <laughs> he was ascetic in his own way. But yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was so learned. If, if anything, he's he, it's it's a very cultivated cynicism. Somebody like Thoreau might be a little closer to it because. He actually like did the experiment and lived in the cabin. I mean, a lot of people can't stand Thoreau, but a lot of his rhetoric, his put downs, his puns. The cynics were great punsters, by the way. I mean, I suggested it a couple of times with some of the anecdotes I mentioned with the, you know, the Chanticleer elector, but also the Lagos, Lagos, Brakos pun. But there's there's tons of them um, in in the surviving Crayi, and uh, Thoreau was big on on that wordplay to score points to his opponent's disadvantage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Well, we touched on this at the very beginning, but I think it's important to return to. Any more thoughts on you know, what are some of the central similarities between Stoicism uh, and Cynicism as you see it? And also, you know, what's that, those crucial lines of difference? Yeah. Well, maybe that virtue is, I mean, I, I don't, I, honestly, I don't know as much about stoicism as many people you've had on this show. So uh, I'm going to, I'm going to refrain from uh, pontificating here, but certainly that virtue is sufficient um, mm-hmm. uh, for happiness. They, they share that the living according to nature, though that becomes defined differently by each of them. This, the, 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 the Stoics are much more sophisticated in, in their definition of that, what they mean by nature and um, in its many aspects. And they're, you know, frankly, more useful um, in that way. You know, the focus on ethics. I mean, the, those, are the, those are the things I, I, I see that are, are closest. I mean, cynicism, again, a shortcut to virtue, um, you know, it could get old quickly <laughs> to be a cynic where stoicism has a, a depth and it's a system that you can latch onto at, at many different points and explore further and, and refine and, and think on. And it's got a longer tradition of that reflection. I mean, the cynics were oralists. They didn't write anything down. So that's one problem. You know, we don't, you know, I mean, there are, tra- uh, tragedies, you know, attributed to Diogenes and some cynic type, People they invented the, the the you know the satire the Menippean satire so it's not like they they were completely not literary but on the whole they were oralists so that that's a that's a problem um, and um, a, a difference in um, the way we were able to access them and appreciate them from this point in time. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. I suppose for people who are interested in Stoicism, they found it useful. Knowing about cynicism, I, I think, is uh, both a useful or at least an interesting challenge, and uh, I think can provide maybe some other forms of models, exemplars to think to think through. 
So you have on the challenge side, there's that question, when are Stoics or any other philosopher taking convention too seriously as a guide to what the virtuous acts are? You know, in Stoicism in particular, you have ideas of role ethics. You know, how which of those roles should one take seriously uh, is, a, is a serious question you get from the cynics. Um, and then in terms of exemplars, as we've been saying, you have the model of Diogenes, Demetrius, Demonax, and so on that I think can be useful to, th to think through. Yeah. Maybe the cynics are lazy Stoics. Maybe that's what they are. Stoics on steroids, but also lazy Stoics. I don't know. That seems to be a contradiction, but they uh, intellectually lazy. They just didn't care, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, in some ways, if you want to be more negative against the cynics, it does seem like they were more parasitical on people around them. They're more of a social parasite than uh, the Stoics were. There wasn't this model of what is it to be a good citizen. And uh, I think that one always does need outsiders to play a role in a society to challenge it. Question convention, be mm -hmm. exemplars for ways things could be different. But there is there is also that concern that you know actually the, there is something that, that means to be a good citizen. That means you know living in the city, even if you're not of it. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of funny they 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 they, they beg for their food, but they they prize autonomy. They, they, um, and they, you know, what Diogenes is reported to have said that the, the thing that he values most is freedom of speech. Uh, so frankness of speech. So, you know, you can say whatever you want if you're not beholden to anybody. And, and they thought that was, that was pretty important. I mean, we mm -hmm. don't always say what we really think. I mean, we couldn't all the time because we, we, well, it would be a social disaster, you know, a political disaster if we actually said out loud <laughs> all the things that we really think. And the cynics uh, were able to do that in a way that others couldn't and because uh, they, you know, they were beholden to anybody. So there's something beneficial in that. And it was like a, it was accepted kind of like, oh, a cynic can say that. It's kind of like stand up comedy. Sometimes I watch that like late night, late night television. I said, oh, my gosh. I teach in the academy, right? I I couldn't say those things. I could not be a stand-up comedian in front of my classes, not that I would want to be, because, you know, you'd be canceled. I mean, you can't say those things in, in this arena, but you can say them on TV in that context because you're a late-night comedian, and there's all sorts of expectations about it. So I think the cynics may have been some sort of, like, cultural conscience uh, in a way, too, um, that they could... They, they could do it. You know, the, the raving cynic on the corner telling the truth to everyone who, who passed by. Like, it's good to hear that once in a while. Who else is going to tell me, you know, that I've got, you know, bad breath and a wart on my nose and that my inside ethic, my, my, my lifestyle is even worse than that. Who's going to say that to you except a cynic on the, on the side of the road? Um, and uh, can you take it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that the the connection to the stand up comedians is on point because they they are a, a group of people who often are able to point out truths that one cannot in ordinary conversation and do it in a way that, of course, they have their own social sphere to do it well. But there's an art, a kind of skill in right. you know, telling a good joke 
that would be completely off color in most most contexts, and even even sometimes is off color in, in the comedic context. And right. As a way, and that's a way to reveal reveal the way that things things really are in a way that's not not as almost not as uh not as crude or yeah uh, as as dangerous as other ways might maybe. So here's a here's an over overwrought and overthought uh, statement. So at the end of the you know the, the the city state, the polis falls into decline. Old comedy goes away. New comedy comes in, and it's just basically melodrama. It's like a soap opera, Menander and blah blah blah. And who who steps in to fill the void for old comedies like social critique and telling the truth, right? Freedom of speech. It's the cynics. So yeah, maybe maybe we are right that it, the stand-up comedian thing is 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 close. Um, so. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, no. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed talking about the cynics. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thanks, sir. Thanks for coming on, and um, we'll have to maybe touch on animals or or farming at another time. Love to do that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.